Advent is a time of waiting, preparation, and joyful expectation for Jesus' birth. We've explored hope, love, joy, and peace this Advent season. Today, we celebrate Christ, not just as a baby in a manger, but as the King of the world. everybody. Merry Christmas. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Illuminate. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy holiday schedule to be with us. Of course, we are gathered to celebrate the birth of the most influential individual in all of human history. Having said that, the fact of the matter is the story kind of does get lost on us. I mean, the reality is in our modern context, (laughs) Christmas has become one massive secular Holiday, And it kind of begins with us when we're kids, right? Because you're always looking forward to that gift or that toy that you want, hoping it'll be underneath the tree. In the, in the home that I grew up in, my mom, my mom loved Christmas music. And so in the background for the entire month of December, mom would, she would have the secular radio station on playing this Christmas music. And in many ways, that forged my own thoughts about Christmas, my own perception of Christmas. And there, there was this one song in particular that, um, well, quite frankly, was kind of terrifying. It, it, it caused me to forbid my grandma from going outside on Christmas Eve. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like Santa had this rogue reindeer that already wiped out one old lady. I'm like, it's not gonna be my grandma next, you know? <laughs> Meanwhile, it's like, the real Christmas story, it actually kind of got lost on me. It's kind of like living in Arizona where you have this beautiful natural feature, one of the seven wonders of the world in your own backyard in the Grand Canyon. And yet you rarely visit it, if ever. Because in the back of your mind you think, well, it'll always be there. It's been there a long time. It'll always be there. And someday I'll get around to it. A lot of people treat the birth of Jesus in that way. They think, well, the story's in the Bible and it'll always be there and someday I'll take the time to discover what it, what it says or even more to the point, what the story actually might mean to me. So that's what I wanna do with you tonight. I wanna take you back in time 2,000 years to where it all began and hopefully help us understand the meaning of Christmas. Begins in Luke chapter two, it goes like this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So this is, in effect, a census that is about to take place. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered. Each was required to go to his hometown, his ancestral hometown. So Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is also called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he was to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger. You know what a manger is. It's a place where the animals gather, literally like a feeding trough, because there was no place for them in the inn. So, Whenever I'm recounting this story, I always like to tell people, it's really important to note that the story of Jesus is rooted in real people, real places, and real time. The story doesn't start like this. 
Once upon a time in a land far away. It's not written in the style of fable or myth. It's actually written in the style of historical narrative. Historians tell us quite a bit about this Caesar Augustus who lived in the first century AD. We know a lot about this Quirinius. Turns out he actually was governor over this area of Syria where Mary and Joseph would have been. Bethlehem, Judea, Nazareth, all of these places that are mentioned, you can go to these places today. Okay? People live in these cities. A census was taken in order to collect taxes and to determine who you could raise up to fight in your army. All of these things are very, very normal. Bethlehem in the day, or even today, it's a small town. Bethlehem, very small town back in the way, in the day. So if, if you had to go there to register, the, the, the town would just swell in population. So it makes sense that by the time Mary and Joseph get there, there's no room for them anywhere. And so what's left is essentially, yeah, a stable where the animals are. Well, there's no room here, but you can have the leftovers. And so that's where they are. None of this is out of the ordinary, okay? It's all to be expected. However, there is a backstory to the Christmas story that you might not know about. And by the way, this backstory, just as a side note, is one of the many reasons why the Bible is set apart from other form, any other form of literature. Let me give you the backstory. 700 years before the time, of Mary and Joseph, there was this man named Isaiah. He was a prophet. God spoke to him, and essentially God said this, I'm about to do something spectacular. Okay. Well, how are we gonna know? Like, what will be the sign? God said, that's right, I'm gonna give you a sign. Isaiah writes this in chapter seven. Therefore, the Lord himself will, will give you a sign. Pause for a second now. If God is the creator, author, and sustainer of all life, we would expect him to drop a sign that would be miraculous, supernatural. Like it would be really hard to miss a sign if God's gonna give one, right? So go on. Here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Okay, that's a pretty good one. That doesn't happen every day. God said, here's how you know I'm about to do something unique. A virgin is gonna give birth. And shall call his name Emmanuel. So, details are important in this story, and the author includes them for good reason. This betrothal period that we read earlier, that describes this time or the space in their relationship together, Mary and Joseph, where they had not yet consummated their marriage. Therefore, what this means is that Mary is still a virgin. Now, think for a second what it would be like to be her. Because it appears that she's about 14 or 15 years old. Think of a high school girl. <laughs> and, and she's the one whom the prophet spoke of was going to have this virgin birth. What would she be thinking? Well, God was actually very kind to her and said, I wanna forewarn you about something that's gonna happen, okay? He actually sends an angel and the angel says this, Luke chapter one, and the angel said to her, Mary, don't be afraid. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you, you shall call his name Jesus. If you don't know, the name Jesus literally means God saves. So there's a little clue about what's, what God is doing through these names. He's very, first you heard Emmanuel, now Jesus, God saved. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. This is his ancestral line. David was the great 
great patriarch, the great king over the nation of Israel. He'll be from that line. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is a description of his power and authority. And Mary said to the angel, like, how is this gonna happen? Because I'm still a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. This word holy literally means pure. The Son of God. Okay, this is a good one. This is a good one. This is a good sign. Virgin gives birth. Pause there for a second because that part of the story is actually more important than you realize and I'll explain that in a moment. But first, let's explore this first name, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Back in the day, names were very, very important. Your name was a way for you to be identified with your people group and your tribe. Later in life, you could be renamed based on your personality and disposition as you got older. So names were very, very important. So when God says, I'm gonna do something spectacular, virgin is gonna give birth, and you're gonna name him Emmanuel, here's where things get really interesting. Because this is a very unusual name, Emmanuel, because it literally means God is with us. Like, who carries that name? God with us. Uh, God is becoming a man, taking on human flesh, dwelling amongst humanity. I love how Max Lucado puts it. He says this. The one who was larger than the universe became a microscopic embryo. The one who sustains the earth would depend on the nourishment of a young girl. Think about that. God had come near, but in the person of Jesus. Okay, so maybe you're, maybe you're new to the Christian faith or maybe you've kind of heard the story in pieces before, but you've never quite heard it in its context. Now you're hearing it for the first time in its fullness, and you're thinking, that sounds really fantastic. I mean, like, hard to believe. Okay, it's a good question. You're thinking the right way. So what evidence is, is there for this? Is that, can, we, can we talk about that, right? Can we talk about that? Like, what evidence is there for this? Well, it's interesting. There's some internal and external evidence. For example, Jesus himself, he went around claiming to be God, claiming to be deity. So in John chapter eight, Jesus is confronted by religious people. Jesus saved his harshest words for religious people, by the way. These religious people are confronting him. And essentially, you know, they they can't deny that he's got the supernatural power. He's been healing people. He's been feeding people. He's been dropping some super profound truths. But he's also been pointing out the hypocrisy in the lives of religious people, and they don't like it. So they say, who do you think you are? You tell us. Who do you think you are? And Jesus is kind of like, all right, well, if you're ready for it, Here's my answer. And he says, before Abraham was born. Now, Abraham was a great patriarch who lived hundreds of years earlier. He says, before Abraham was born, and then he drops this on him, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. That's essentially a statement of preexistence. Like, before Abraham was born, I am. But it's that word, I, those words, I am. That's the thing that really, really upset people because if you read just the next few verses, you know, you know how the religious people responded to Jesus saying that? They picked up rocks and they tried to kill him. When people say Jesus never claimed to be God, time out. Why do you think they nailed him to a cross? Consider all the things he did. He did a lot of really good things, 
super kind, super gentle. Jesus didn't come, he didn't condemn anybody, but at the same time, he didn't condone everything either. Fed people, healed people, drove out demons. Why would they take a guy like that and nail him to the cross? You ever think about that? The reason is because he claimed to be deity. I'll give you another one. Jews in the first century were fiercely monotheistic as they are to this day, right? Um, All of a sudden, at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you have all of these Jews in Jerusalem bending the knee and worshiping Jesus as if Jesus is God. Why would they do that? That doesn't make any sense. Something must have happened. They must have seen something in Jesus that persuaded them everything this guy said about himself was true. I'll give you another one. Jesus went around forgiving people of their sins, even when he was the one that wasn't directly offended. He would just walk around saying, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Okay, so let me put it, let me describe it to you this way. Let's say you and me and Bob, we're having a conversation together. And you say something that makes Bob mad and Bob just hauls off and slaps you in the face. Bob has offended you, he's hurt you. I'm standing next to you and I'm just observing everything. And all of a sudden I look over at, at, at Bob and I say, Bob, I forgive you. <laughs> You're gonna look at me and go, what, Jason, are you crazy? You weren't the one he slapped, he slapped me. Jesus did that all the time. He would constantly go around telling people, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. And in the Jewish mindset, there was only one person who could forgive sins and that was God himself. Why is that? Because essentially every offense is ultimately against God. They're his rules. How do we know what's wrong and what's right? Well, intuitively you have a sense of that. Where do you think that comes from? The scripture says that's planted within every human. But more to the point, God kind of writes it and he puts it in black and white. There was something about Jesus that changed people, changed their perspective of him. Okay, this is what certain imponderables, if you will, surrounding Jesus that you have to think about. So if you know me, you know I can't preach Christmas without preaching Easter. There's only one rational explanation for it. Jesus did what he said he was gonna do. First, he said he was deity. Then secondly, he backed it up by saying this. You destroy this temple and in three days, what? I'm coming back. The earliest followers of Jesus were cowards at his crucifixion. They're gathered together, they're huddled together, like, they just killed our leader, it's gonna be really bad for us, what's next? Shortly thereafter, they all, pretty much all end up dying the death of martyrs, believing that Jesus was who he said he was. What explanation do you have? It's kinda like I've said before, like, why is Christianity a thing? Why is it still around? Because it shouldn't be. It had everything going against it. The only reasonable explanation is, Jesus is who he said he was. So these are, the, these are part and parcel of the, the Christmas story that there's more, there's more to it than meets, meets the eye. Now, having said that, I, I wanna say this because I wanna put everything that I'm saying in a modern context, okay? And, and all that to say this. Jesus, because of who he was, he would essentially say something that people today find absolutely intolerable, and that is this. He would say, I am the only way to God. And see, this is where many modern people today, they wanna pick up rocks and they wanna throw at Jesus because it's so irritatingly exclusive. You have to understand that about Christmas. Christmas is the source of that irritating exclusivity. 
That is Christianity. That is the words of Jesus. But in reality, Christmas is the source of the world's greatest inclusivity. And, uh, and, and I'll show you why. The Bible describes the sickness and the cure for all humanity. So imagine that you're at the doctor and the doctor, you tell the doctor, what's wrong? Well, I've got some aches and pains, I'm not feeling good. And the doctor says, well, you know, just get, just get some rest, drink plenty of fluids and you'll be fine. So three, four, five weeks later, you're not feeling any better. So uh, you go to another doctor. You go to a dozen doctors, they all tell you to do the same thing. You're feeling worse and worse. Finally, you go to a doctor and the doctor says, one doctor says, you know what, we need to take a blood sample, okay? So take a blood sample and results are back. Hey, you need to sit down because I have the results and here's what you need to know. You have a sickness that's gonna take your life unless you start treatment immediately. Are you gonna look at that doctor and say, how dare you? How dare you tell me that? Doctor's gonna be like, look, you can see the markers. The markers are right there. You can deny it all you want, but here's the reality of the situation. So the Bible says that every single person on the planet is a sinner. And that's actually why the world is so messed up. And in a nutshell, sin is your and my overwhelming desire to serve ourselves above anyone else. Sure, there are moments when we perform acts of kindness to those around us, but let me just say this to you without raising your hand. Have you ever done something intentionally mean towards someone whom you've said you've loved? So it is within every human heart, there is some corruption. Now, earlier I said, that little part, that virgin birth part of the story, way more important than you understand. And here's why. The reason why there's corruption within us is because our source was corrupted, Adam and Eve. Right? If you know the story, they were the first to enter into this dysfunctional relationship with God and the dysfunction was theirs when they chose to go their own way and, and disobey God. We inherited that from them. Uh, think of it this way. They were the source of the stream and if the source of the stream is polluted, then everything downstream is also gonna be what? Polluted, okay? So they were our source, our human source. So we being downstream from them, we inherit their pollution, their sin pollution as well. And so then the, the, the story about the virgin birth, though, is interesting because that virgin birth breaks that cycle. Does that make sense? It breaks that cycle. So Jesus wasn't born in the usual way as you and I were, to, to, with parents, with earthly parents, begotten by the Holy Spirit through a virgin. Therefore, he was without sin, the Bible says. That's why, that's why this virgin birth thing is kind of important in the story. Now, take a pause, take a step back and think, who, who invents a story like this? Who creates something like this? this? Even the story itself is supernatural. All of a sudden, Christianity doesn't become so exclusive because, well, every other world leader, faith leader who's ever come on the scene has essentially told you this. Follow my good moral teaching and heaven, eternity, bliss, nirvana, whatever, will be yours. Jesus never said anything like that. Instead, what he said was, you can't get there on your own. Secondly, you're, 
you're not as good as you think you are. So Jesus comes on the scene and does for you what you couldn't do for yourself. People mistakenly think that Christianity is exclusive. In fact, Christianity is the most inclusive thing on the planet because all people are at the foot of the cross, exposed as sinners in need of a savior. This is the beautiful thing about being in the Christian community. Well, we don't condemn anybody. In the spirit of Jesus, we don't condemn, we don't look down on everybody. It is literally one beggar telling another beggar where to find the food. The other beautiful thing about the Christian community is whatever your socioeconomic background is, whatever your story is, whatever your upbringing, your, your, your family of origin, uh, your, your race, your ethnicity, all of that stuff, not that those things aren't important, but they just kind of melt away because you realize that what you have in common is the very thing that Jesus came to die for. And that is humbling humanity in the best possible way. So there was this man named the Apostle Paul comes on the scene at uh, the time of Jesus. And he writes about what it's like to experience Jesus uh, in, in, in our own time. Second Corinthians chapter four, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's the language of Genesis. And what he's about to tell you is God is gonna shine light again. He has shown in our light in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, God is gonna bring light again, not like the language of Genesis, not, not as he did at the beginning when he said, let there be light. He's bringing light in a spiritual way in the form of Jesus, who is the representative of himself. I think of all the things that signify the beginning of the Christmas season, I think the thing I like the most are Christmas lights. You know? I love that scene in Christmas Vacation where the cat is chewing on the Christmas light cord. You know the one I'm talking about? While the cat is chewing on the cord, Clark plugs it in, and you just hear the cat let out this horrible screeching sound, like, and then there's this like burnt out cat-sized hole in the bottom of the floor, and then Cousin Eddie steps up, he's like, well, that cat had nine lives, you spent them all right there. (laughs) And I thought, more recently, while watching it again, I thought, isn't it interesting? So many things in this life that give the appearance of light, well, shiny things often hide hooks. And the things that you think will bring you light and life end up enslaving you very often. And so it's almost as if, well, please don't tell me the Bible is irrelevant, antiquated, or outdated. There has to be this light, not from within, but from outside. Same prophet Isaiah, two chapters later, would say this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You know what he's describing? He's describing the state of the planet in his own time, 700 BC. Jesus arrives 2,000 years from our time. And in many ways, well, is it just me? Or do you not think that the world still has quite a bit of darkness in it? Uh, You have, especially this time of the year, incredibly high rates of suicide 
you have skyrocketing mental illness in our time. Have you seen the research regarding the younger generations and the levels of anxiety that they experience? It's horrible. I don't think there's one family on the planet that doesn't have some measure of dysfunction in it. Can't believe I didn't get an amen after that one. (laughs) Come on now. Because y'all are gonna be together for the next 24 hours. There are countries at war. I mean, you know, like people are dying today, right now, because of conflict. And the prophet says, in the midst of this darkness, a light is shining. So I think there's a couple of of implications here uh, for you and me in this. You might have to change the way you think about God. So you might be a cynic, a skeptic, a doubter, and I get that, because I spent some time in that arena. And you might think that God isn't really interested in you. The message of Christmas destroys that. All of their worldviews and faith, faith systems, it has you reaching out to God, you attempting to earn your way to God. That's a mind mess, because how do you know you've ever, you've, you're good enough? Only in Christianity do you have God saying, no, I'm coming to you. And and consider this real quick. Jesus was born in a manger. Sights, sounds, and smells of farm animals. He could have been born in a palace. This is the son of God. Could have been born in a palace behind gates, the sound of a blaring trumpet. All three of my kids had more fanfare than Jesus did at his birth. All three of my kids, at their birth, they had more celebration, more fanfare than Jesus did at his birth. Even the way God is doing, even this whole story, this setup, God is communicating something, and that is this, approachable. In the past, God's like, you know, spoke from a burning bush or this pillar of fire, and not anymore. Emmanuel, God with us. You might have to rethink the way you think about God. Second implication is this. If God went to this length to be with you, what could possibly be stopping you from taking, listen to my words now, just the smallest step toward him? What could possibly be stopping you from doing that? I'm gonna, with your permission, if I can, I'm just gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Just to free you from any distraction because quite frankly, this is the most important part of our time Together, This is the meaning of Christmas. And my question to you is, you know, have you taken it up into your, your heart? Maybe this afternoon you're hearing things that you've never heard before, maybe a different perspective, and you're like, man, at least I'm intrigued, and, and I, would, I would love to know more. I would love to have a conversation with somebody about this. It would be our greatest privilege to step into that space and have those conversations with you. There's a little card in the seat back in front of you. If you would just take out, fill it, fill it out, whatever information you feel comfortable filling out, just so we can get a hold of you. And within the next couple of weeks, not this week, not next week, but the first week of the year, we'll reach out and we'll talk about it. And maybe for those of you that have been 
coming for a while and you're familiar with the story, maybe at this point, the question is, hey, well, how do I appropriate it? You know, really, what does it mean for me? Father, our desire is that as the story is told, it would connect, it would resonate within our hearts, perhaps in a way that it hasn't before. We're just grateful for the gift. God, you are a giver, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, that was the motivation, love, that he gave his son. That's the sacrifice. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Pray a special blessing over every person in the room. Just so thankful for them that they're here. They are not here by accident. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm gonna...